If you would, uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. We have been doing a series called Keeping in Step with the Spirit. And this week we're going to talk about loving by the Spirit. Next week, the next two weeks, I won't be here. Rod and Jason are going to talk about worship in the Spirit and uh, preaching in the Spirit. We'll only have two more after that, unity in the Spirit and keeping in step with the Spirit with the Great Commission. Thank you. But today, let's read uh, 1 John 4, starting in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this love, not, excuse me, in this is love, that we, not we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And so we have come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been yet perfected in love. We love... Because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he, is, he, for he who does not love his brother, whom he can... Excuse me. I'm sorry, I'm getting lost here. He who does not love his brother, whom he has... What is going on here? Oh, okay. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. In order to really talk about loving in the Spirit, we have to kind of look at how the Bible defines love. There are several words for love in the Bible that are Actual Greek words, but translated to the word love. One of those words is agape. Another one is phileo. Another one is patria. And the fourth one is eros. Agape love is basically defined by the Greeks as love of the will. In other words, it's a love that's set on someone and it's intensely set on that person and cannot be altered by what the loved one does. Hmm. Think about that. 
It is unconditionally directed regardless of the love received back. Now, you might want to immediately categorize this as God's love, but it is a word that is used to describe God's word, but you have to understand that even the Greek words sometimes fall short of completely explaining his love. And I don't believe I can do any better job myself today, but we're going to look at it anyway. It's the best word that we have to attempt to understand it. In Ephesians 3.19, it says, You need to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. And right here it tells us that ultimately his love is beyond our understanding. And since we have this word used here, we'll use it today. The second word is the Greek word phileo, where we get our word Philadelphia, meaning brotherly love. It's an imperfect love based on the commonness of our fellowship together and purpose. In other words, it's a love the church has for each other. The next word used is the word patria, and it means family or love for family. Patria means having the same father. So it's a blood relationship with our family members, and this too is imperfect. The last word is eros, and has to do with the intimate love between a husband and wife, which when it's perverted, it becomes an abomination to God. All these words are used to describe love in the Bible. In their context is what has to happen to see what's really going on. In John 15:12, Jesus said, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And he uses the word agape. So he calls us up to that love. And we'll examine this love in the sense of how God loves us first, and then how we, through those divine, those things of his divine nature that have been imparted to us, to also love one another. First of all, let's look at just God's love in general. And we're going to do that by looking at God. <laughs> but think about, as we go through this, just reflect on who God is in this process and his love for you. First of all, God's love is self-giving, a self-giving love. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't count the cost to love you. It, God in his triune condition before creation was love, before he created the first angel, before he created the man. He was already love. But love has to have at least two people or two uh, beings so that that love exists between them. In this case, three, Father, Son, and Spirit. John said, uh, Jesus said in John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. God loved his Son before he loved anything else. He is love. And God did not have to create anyone to love. Or to be loved. He's just loved by himself. <laughs> but he did create so he could express his highest motive to us, his love. In fact, in John 16, 26 and 27, it says this. Jesus is speaking again. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask on the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Knowing the love God, 
knowing the God of love, can make us able to love others better. In fact, not only getting to know him more intimately can cause us to become more like him, but resting secure in the assurance that he loves us will keep us from making ridiculous commands and demands on one another. Think about that. And we can, we're free to read out, reach out unselfishly to one another and serve them for their benefit alone. It's vitally important to see and understand how much God loves us. So God's love is self-giving, but God's love is sacrificial. He not, his love not only motivates him to give, when it, but, it, but he motivated to give even though it cost him dearly. The love cost him his son. That's what it cost God to love you and me. Jesus faced and conquered death on the cross, and it's impossible to describe the intensity of the suffering that he had, but the motive for all of it was love. If you're tempted to think that no one loves you, go to the cross of Christ and you'll see his love. You really understand what you actually deserve from God and then see the sacrificial love that God has by giving his son for you, you'll experience more of an understanding of his love. Thirdly, God's love is unconditional. One of the most amazing things about God's love is that it's given to those who don't deserve it. That's us. And it's given as a gift without cost to us. Don't you find that amazing? When we sing Amazing Grace, do you think about this? We have a tendency only to love those who love us back. We base our love on them by their performance, or performance up to our expectations at least. That's not that way with God. He loves us because he loves us. Can't figure it out. He loves us because he loves us. Nothing he, we ever did or ever will do is going to cause him to love us more or less. He treats us like children. Now, this is only true of those who are in Christ. Other people outside of Christ cannot claim God's love. They're still under his wrath. But even though we deliberately rebel against him, he never, never, ever stops loving us. In Romans eight thirty-eight and 39... And, and Rod read this this morning. He says, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to se- separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's the requirement that you're in Christ. Of course, he loves you before you're in Christ and wants to get you in Christ if he can so he can open up the windows of his love to you even more. Next, God's love is eternal. It's a difficult idea for us because we love so temporarily. Jeremiah 31.3, it says, The Lord appeared to him from far away and said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. It's eternal. You can't exhaust the love of God. Just about the time you think you are, have passed it or surpassed it, he still loves us. We're not necessarily supposed to figure it out. 
We're just to believe him and let him love us, even though we're not very lovable. And it is a love that reaches the lowest sinner on earth. Listen to F.M. Lehman's gospel song. I'm not going to sing it because my voice isn't the best today, but listen to these verses. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. What an explanation of God's love. Understanding this will enable us to keep extending love to others around us even when our love, love, and when our love is not returned from them. Next, God's love is holy. Some people think of God's love, they are merely a soft, sloppy sentimentality. You know, God's an indulgent Father who gives us everything we want and then conveniently turns His head the other way when we sin. Not so. Everything God does is done in the totality of who He is. So His love must always be consistent with His other attributes. Since He is holy, His love commands and encourages holiness. And God will use every means of His disposal, and He's got a lot of them, to bring us to obedience. He knows that because He loves us, He knows that obedience to His Word is the only thing that brings us real happiness. And because of that, to move outside of that kind of relationship with Him brings us death. So when God disciplines us, He's not doing it because He's mad at us. Rather, that we would come into conformity with His divine nature of holiness. That He would just... He would not just let us go on in our sin and ignore it. That he would be loving and pulling us in. What kind of parents would we be if we let our children get away with anything? Anything they please. They'll try. (laughs) Our love for them constrains us to discipline them in order to ensure good behavior. It's the same with God. He's a loving father. He does nothing for his children that's not motivated by love. And though I don't believe God enjoys inflicting pain, he understands the limits we will go in our disobedience without being corrected. So he expects his church to be holy. Nothing will attract the world to Jesus Christ if the church tolerates open rebellion before God. We've been called to holiness. Hebrews 12, 14 says this, Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. That could be a scary verse. Next, God's love is comforting. Some children would give everything they have to have someone who loves them and cares for them is enough to set limits for their behavior and administer loving discipline when they violate those limits. That would mean more to them than all the material things of the world because it's evidence of true love. And true love brings security and comfort. 
They know when someone who loves them enough to endure the unpleasantness of administering discipline will do anything in their power to care for them. And that brings them genuine consolation. But also, when we're going through danger, when we're going through trials and troubles, God is very quick to comfort us. John expressed it there in John 4, 1 John 4, 17 through 19. By this, <clears throat> love is perfected that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we also in this world. There's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. fear. Fear has to do with punishment. Whoever has fear has not yet been perfected in love. We love because he loved us. Next, God's, life is, God's love is life-changing. It changes life. Most of us long to be loving people. It's impossible for us to love others if we do not know that we ourselves are loved by God. Until you can rest in the love of God. Unconditional, eternal, self-sacrificial love of God that He has set His, uh, His affections on you. That's what the word agape means. Regardless of your performance, until you rest in that, can't love anybody else. You can pretend to, but you don't really love. There's a lot of times I wish people in the church would quit being so busy and just learn to settle down and learn the love of God. Because then, once that happens, a call for service has, doesn't even have to go out. They'll all have a mind of Christ. My most heartfelt condemnation of myself is when I'm unloving. The conviction that I may have hurt someone, not by telling them the truth, but by imposing my own attitude on them. Telling someone the truth brings about life change. The gospel itself is offensive. It really is. So we can expect people to be offended when we speak the truth. Telling someone the truth about themselves, though, in an accusative way can cause more harm than good. And Jesus understood this when he said this in Matthew 15, 12 through 14. The disciples came to him and said, Do you not know that the Pharisees were offended by what you said? He said, Every plant my heavenly Father did not plant will not be will be rooted up let them alone in other words i don't care i'm not here to worry about offending people with the truth they're blind guides of the blind and if the blind follow the blind all they will fall into the pit jesus didn't care if they were offended he cared about the will of god primarily the glory of God. You can't please a gossip or a slander. They'll take your words and twist them to mean what they want. You and I shouldn't care if people are offended by the truth. Because it, the truth hurts. I mean, it, sometimes it hurts. Jesus seemed harsh to the hypocrites, called them uh, brood of vipers and whitewashed tombs. But he, but he was gentle with those who are in bondage to sin who didn't want to be in bondage to sin. 
The Pharisees didn't understand this. Because love is life-changing. If it doesn't have this effect, the problem is not in the one doing the loving, is it? It's the one in listen, the one's listening. Okay, so we've seen some attributes of God's love. Think about him, how he loves, as we sang. Oh, how he loves us. But now, let's go back and look at ourselves. What about us? Can we love in those same attributes as God? Well, the answer is yes, because when we were sealed in Christ, we were partakers of the divine nature. It doesn't come from us at all. It comes from Him. But if we're focused on Him, here's what we're supposed to do. Ephesians 1, or 5, 1 and 2. Listen to what he says. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In the church, we are supposed to imitate God as his beloved children. That means that we love one another like he loves us. 1 John 4, 11 and 12 there, we just read, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. And then on back in chapter 3 of 1 John, he says this, By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God dwell there? Little children, let us love not just in word and talk, but in deed and truth. The real God, the real love of God that works through us creates action in us. So our love should be self-giving, just like God. If we really love each other, we'll not put our earthly possessions and our treasures above the needs of our brothers and sisters. We're to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. That means we're ready to meet their need anytime there is a need. Anytime. If we look at our own resources, though, or how much we've got in savings or how much we've got in our bank account, that's the wrong place to look. We're supposed to look to God from the riches and glory that He has. Because He says, You can't outgive me. Right? So we first give ourselves to the Lord. Everything we own. And this love demonstrated through that process causes us to prove that we're disciples to those outside. Our love should be sacrificial like God. Jesus said we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. And that's an attitude of sacrifice even unto death. These bodies are here but a short time on this earth. And we don't want these bodies up there. We want new bodies. These bodies are deteriorating. They're hurting. They're, you know, constantly having to pray for somebody in the hospital. So we have to be ready to be sacrificial. Several years ago, when we went down to Shining Light Mission, there were a bunch of men that went that year who were servants and, and, and leaders in this church. And Dean Wallace pulled up in his car and he was talking to Jason. And over a little, little ways away were some, some of these men were sitting at a picnic table. You remember this? Jason, uh, 
excuse me, Dean asked Jason, what in the world? Where did you find this church? What makes this church so amazing? Jason said to Dean, you see those men sitting over there on that picnic table that were taking a rest from their work? He goes, yes. Any one of them would take a bullet for John Bateman. Now, I didn't know he said that at the time. You now remember it. But the point is, any one of them would have taken a bullet for any of you. (laughs) That's the point. Dean told me several times, he calls me every week. He said, oh, how I wish I had a group of men around me like you have around you. I said, (laughs) believe me, I appreciate it. I really do. Our love must be unconditional. We can't pick and choose who we want to love. If someone names the name of Christ, we are to treat that person as a brother or sister. We're not to treat that person by looking on the exterior of how they dress or how they, you know, even talk, but rather on their need. Their need is for Christ, right? So real love then meets the deepest need of the person being loved. I love my wife. It's not always easy to do. But I love her because she needs it, not because she deserves it. She respects me, not because I deserve it. But she respects me because I need it, not because I deserve it. Both of those words are actually unconditional words in, in the Bible, love and respect. We can't choose to love someone in the church because they're particularly lovable or because they dress a certain way or because they have some standard of religiousness that we're trying to give, or maybe a denominational distinctive. Oh, they're not Baptists. Hey, we're supposed to love all of our brothers and sisters in Christ on a completely unconditional state, regardless of dress, personality, crooked nose, doesn't matter. (laughs) Our love as God should be eternal. Sometimes we get in conflicts with one another, don't we? I mean, hey, we're not going to lie about that. We do. We have, sometimes we forget, though, that we're going to spend eternity with each other. And if we can't get along here, what are we going to do in eternity? You know, I think it's doubtful that a person's really saved if they refuse to forgive another brother in Christ. Even if that person doesn't ask for forgiveness. And they may never know you have forgiven them. We still are to love and forgive them. We draw people by our gospel into eternal life. How can we then treat them as enemies once they become members of the church? That's ridiculous. And I'm not talking about church discipline here. I'm talking about this kind of love where, let's face it, some people are really ragged-edged people. Difficult. You feel like you're being scraped and your very soul being a part of them. (laughs) <laughs> I'm sitting here wondering how many people are going, yeah, that's you, John. I know you do. These are the ones God really loves, too. And we have to do the same. I would like you to personally make a commitment today to love your brothers and sisters in this congregation for all eternity. You will treat them much different if you do. Our love must be holy. 
God's love is holy. He calls us to holiness. This doesn't mean perfection. It doesn't mean that any of us are perfect. But our lives should be those that are progressing in holiness. Even though the progress may be slower with some than others, that's okay. God knows that. He's their Heavenly Father, not you. God calls His church to be holy. He expects us to administer discipline on those who refuse to repent of open rebellion. And I'm talking about open rebellion. I'm not talking about, you know, uh, you accidentally said a bad word. You turned and said, Lord, please forgive me. I'm not talking about your everyday life. But some people who decide to live in open immorality and say they're Christians and still show up at church, God has scriptures all over the place commanding the entire church to discipline them, to say, look, what you're doing is going to cause death. I want to rescue from that. Galatians 6.1 says, He that is spiritual, restore the one who has sinned in a spirit of meekness, considering yourself lest you be tempted. James says, He who turns a sinner away from his sin covers a multitude of sins. We have responsibility and accountability to one another. Actually, if you have a brother and sister in here that you know is living in open rebellion, and you have to, this has to be something obvious, okay? You have a responsibility to deal with it before it ever gets to an elder or a pastor. You should be the one dealing with it. And you will be surprised sometimes if you will go and say, you know, Larry, I'm going to use you as an example here, but you're not really the one I'm talking about here. But if, you, if I saw you in open rebellion and I said, Larry, I'm really struggling with how do you reconcile your behavior with the Word of God? Well, who are you, John? You're just as much of a sinner as I am. You're right. But I'm progressing toward holiness. And as long as you keep in this open rebellion, you are progressing toward death. That's our responsibility. Now, you don't have to go in there with a big bony finger and put it in their chest. Be gentle. Be Say, look, I don't understand this. I can't grasp this. I don't understand how you reconcile this. And call yourself a Christian. Many people don't think we should do that. But some people just don't obey the Holy Spirit. doesn't matter if the Holy Spirit's rebuking them over and over and over again. Sometimes they just shut him out. And you know why that's true. We know Christians that have decided to go in a different direction, and we know they're wrong, but they're not listening to God. You don't love them if you don't confront them. Now, here's the thing. And Rod spoke about this several weeks ago, back when we were doing the nature of the church. We're not supposed to go around rebuking each other constantly. We're supposed to go around encouraging one another constantly. <laughs> but it's always obvious when, the other, when somebody does this. And it's more obvious in an immoral situation than it is an open rebellion situation. But pray, pray, pray for that person. Because, believe it or not, they are headed for death. Even the Word of God tells us this. It says, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for doctrine or teaching, for rebuke, for correction, 
for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You see that? The Word of God has a powerful effect on you if it's working properly. And if you're being the kind of servant of God, humbled before Him, and the fact that you're nothing more than a sinful pile of dust with the Holy Spirit, He's given you the responsibility to hold me accountable. Did you hear what I said? He's given you the responsibility to hold me accountable. And I'm going to tell you, a pastor and an elder are tempted three times as hard as you are, maybe more. The devil wants to ruin our reputation, ruin our lives, ruin everything we say to you, have people completely discount and take all credibility away. And so we're not perfect. So what you have to do to hold your pastor accountable is get on your knees. Because I am an imperfect. Jason and Rod, we are imperfect piles of dust. We've been called by God to, to give out the Word of God. That doesn't make us perfect. It just means we've got a job to do. Somebody called the other day, came up to me and said, uh, Pastor Bateman, uh, Pastor John, uh, Pastor... I said, would you stop calling me Pastor? Seriously, pastor's a job, not a title. I don't go up to Brock and say, physical therapy, Mr. Brock. I don't do I don't go Larry. Uh, Fireman Larry. You don't have to call me Pastor John. You should hold the job of pastor in respect, according to Scripture, but you can just call me John. And don't call me late for dinner. Okay. Finally, you know, a couple of, of weeks ago, I want you to understand this comfort that God gives us. Second Corinthians 1, 3 through 6, 6. 3 through 6. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. With the comfort, we ourselves were comforted by God. So as we share abundantly Christ's sufferings, so also we share abundantly his comfort. You know, the first thing that happens to us bad, we go, why me? <laughs> Instead, what we, we should say is, why not? We're in Christ. So he says, if we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort. Get it? If we're afflicted, it's for you. If we're comforted, it's for you. It's for somebody else. Somewhere, some down, someone somewhere down the road is going to need to know how you and I went through what we went through. It'll be not necessarily well understood. Our love should be comforting by assuring them of God's love. Remember the sermon I preached several weeks ago about the geese? Y'all remember that? That the geese are honking to tell that front geese to what? Go the distance. And the honk isn't, you know, I don't like that front geese very much. He's kind of a jerk. Or another honk is, I think that front geese could fly a little better than he's flying. No, they're wind drafting behind him, and they're getting the full benefit of him being out in front. And so they honk, saying, hang in there. They honk, say, 
keep doing your job. They honk, say, go the distance. Honk, honk, honk. Mr. Aiken, every sermon I preach, or anybody preaches here, comes up after them, shakes their hand and says, honk, honk. <laughs> Said it to me yesterday after we left this wedding we did. And finally, our, our love, like God's, ought to be life-changing. It should change us. And when I see you loving me and loving each other, it changes me. It encourages me. It encourages you. Unless we're willing to love, as these above attributes of God have suggested, we won't change anybody's life. Now, God ultimately has to change it, doesn't he? But he wants to use us to do that. How many here can say that there's somebody in this church, either today or in the past, has changed your life through something they did for you or said to you? How many? Well, here's my final statement to you. Go and do likewise. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your love that's demonstrated to us in such amazing attributes and calls us into that same thing, calls us to imitate your love, to be dear children, to love one another because we're going to spend eternity together and to learn how you love us so that we can do that effectively. I pray for anybody here today that has not taken that step to trust Christ completely and totally, and only Him. Not looking for anything going on inside or an experience, but just seeing your testimony of Jesus, that it's true, that it's true for me, and that I get to take it as a gift. Believing your word that it's mine. I pray for that person today. In Jesus' name, amen.